Hi, this is Universe of Art, a podcast from Science Friday and WNYC Studios about artists who use science to take their creations to the next level. I'm Dee Peter Schmidt. So how good are people at recognizing different types of music from cultures that aren't their own? Can people accurately tell the difference between a dance song and a lullaby? That was the question a team of researchers had at Harvard's Music Lab a few years back. They took different songs from all over the world, from 86 mostly small-scale societies, including the one I just played, which was a dance song from the Hopi people of Arizona, and played them for people from 60 different countries to see how well they could actually categorize the music. So how well did those participants do, and what does the study tell us about how hardwired we are to recognize different kinds of music? Here's Science Friday host Ira Flato talking to two of the scientists who ran the study with those answers. Samuel Mayer is a research associate in the Department of Psychology and principal investigator of the Music Lab at Harvard University. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, thanks for having us. You're welcome. Amanver Singh is a PhD candidate in human evolutionary biology, also at Harvard. Welcome to Science Friday. Yeah, thank you. Hello. Amanver, um, let me ask you first. In this study, you were interested in seeing if listeners were able to match up the form of a song to its function. Can you explain what you, what you mean and what you were looking for? Why were you interested in this? Yeah. Um, so what we mean is we were kind of asking, do songs that share social functions around the world, share functions like um, being used to make people to dance or being used to calm fussy infants, heal illness, do they have convergent features? And we were thinking both about the contextual features, so stuff like uh, whether instruments are used or the gender of the singers, but also, very importantly, the musical features. So the melodic complexity, the rhythmic complexity, the tempo, etc. Mm -hmm. And uh, Samuel, for the first part of the study, you used the internet to play clips to people online to see if they could pick out these types of songs, correct? Yeah, that's right. So we had a, a pretty large collection of songs from all over the world um, as part of the Natural History of Song Discography, which is a project that Manvir and I co-direct with Luke Glowacki. Um, and we took little snippets of each song, 14 seconds apiece, and played them to listeners in 60 different countries all over the world. Um, and the experiment's really simple. Basically, people all over the world listen to each snippet and then ask a uh, answer a series of questions about each of them about what they think the singers are doing. We asked them, do you think the singers are using the song for dancing? Do you think they're using the song? Uh, to soothe an infant, to heal illness, and so on. All right, let's let's let our listeners in on the fun. We're going to play the songs for them. Let's listen to one form. There are three different dance songs in this one clip. <laughs> Those were, those were dance samples from the Yangu of Australia, the Mentawe of Southeast Asia, and the Hopi of Arizona, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And how well were listeners able to identify these as dance songs, Samuel? 
Oh, so uh, the the really striking finding, um, especially for dance songs, is that not only are people around the world very accurate at identifying uh, when a song is being used for dancing, they rate it quite highly on this dimension used for dancing, um, but they're also really confident in their ratings. They they rate it you know super high on the scale relative to other songs, and they rate them rate they rate them highly consistently with other listeners around the world. So it doesn't matter if I'm sitting here you know in Cambridge listening to this dance song or you know Mondra's yeah. doing it from Mentawai. We we agree with each other. All right. Let me listen to another form. I'm going to give out uh, three, three more songs. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to reveal what type it is. So listeners, try to guess what type of songs these are. Yeah. What, what do you think? What kind of songs were they? I'm, time's up. I'm going to tell you. They were lullaby samples from the Sa, the Saami of Scandinavia, the Nyangatam of East Africa, and the Ainu of uh, East Asia. Uh, does identifying the type of song have to do with the elements of the song? You would think that a lullaby would be right, right quieter, have less singers, Sam or uh, Manvir? Yeah, so what we actually found in a follow-up experiment was that, yeah, listeners do seem to be using the features of the songs to make their rating decisions. And lullabies in particular are defined, seem to be different on all of the features that we examined. So they have slower tempos, they are less melodically and rhythmically complex, they are less happy-sounding, kind of less exciting. Um, And we saw that, that listeners use both these musical features as well as the contextual features, like is there an instrument or mm. uh, is you know the gender of the person singing? So yeah, it seems like they are using those features. Mm-hmm. Uh, Samuel, you're you're a cognitive scientist. Do you think that our brains form to pick up these type of songs for some reason? Well, so I think that's one of the sort of interesting questions that's still open um, that research like this paper helps us to begin to answer. Um, So theories from biological evolutionary work and uh, cultural evolutionary work make different predictions about what we should find in the world when we study music across different cultures. And those theories are testable in these data sets. So two theories are out there about, you know, where dance music might come from, uh, from a biological perspective, and where lullabies might come from, from a biological perspective. And both of those make predictions, not only that dance songs and lullabies should share features across cultures, which is what we find in this paper, mm-hmm. but also that those features should should be shaped by their sort of adaptive function. Um, and those are those are sort of really interesting biological questions that we're going to be able to test as, as more work like this is done. Interesting. Manvir, is there an evolutionary hypothesis to why some of these sounds develop for a particular function? Yeah, yeah. So like Sam is mentioning, there are some people who hypothesize, for example, that music has evolved so that we can dance and we can kind of be a a more socially cohesive group or that we can dance together and signal to other people that that we are a very formidable group. Alternatively, there are other evolutionary theories that say that lullabies, for example, the singing of lullabies and the uh, listening of lullabies evolved for parents to signal their attention. So these are a body of theories that we call adaptive theories. They all say that music making and music listening evolved for adaptive reasons. Interesting. And there are these more byproduct hypotheses that say that, yeah, actually the human mind has evolved uh, 
and and like our auditory capabilities have evolved for completely different reasons and and music has just kind of developed to really hack our psychology in a very gratifying way <laughs> kind of like a drug um, yeah and that, that's a byproduct hypothesis yeah. our work can't really discriminate among them but but it at least does show that um, that the human mind does seem consistent across societies and how it responds to these different songs. Now, they're, they're, I'm going to play one more group of songs. There was a type of song that people were not good, not as good as identifying. Let me, let's hear an example. Hey, listeners, any idea what type of song that was? Uh, that was a love song, a Rwandan love song from Central Africa. It's a beautiful little song. I love that recording. Yeah, this is one of our favorites. So Monvery and I are smiling and kind of moving around in the studio here. <laughs> well, send us the rest of that one. Any, <laughs> any, any theories on why love songs were so hard to identify for people? Well, so we don't really know, but there there are a few kind of interesting um, ways in which love songs could differ kind of categorically from the other songs that we studied in this paper. Um, the first is just sort of a, a simple explanation, which is just that maybe across cultures, love songs are more ambiguously defined than something as kind of straightforward as a lullaby, where, you know, I think if you asked a lot of people on the internet, you know, what, what counts as a lullaby, people would kind of converge to mm. things that are soothing for kids and babies and that kind of thing. But love songs are a little harder to find. So maybe maybe the, the sort of ambiguous results just reflect that. I mean, it could also be that love songs are not defined so much or not are not obvious to listeners so much from their musical features, but are more obvious because of other things like the words that are in them. So there was a really interesting sort of secondary finding in our first experiment where we asked listeners how much they thought songs were used to tell a story. None of the songs in the data set were explicitly that kind of storytelling song. But even so, this measure seemed to pick up love songs. So love songs were highly rated as used to tell a story, which suggests that maybe there's something about the words of love songs that you know tell listeners oh this is this is more about love mm-hmm. there has been some pushback to the study that in, in that these songs are all from small-scale societies and you played them for online listeners do you think this skews the interpretation is, is this just what internet users think of these songs well i mean that's a really really good point um yeah, so all of our listeners are people who have access to the internet and people who speak english so i mean one can make this responsive oh so it might only be a very, very restricted population that shares these conceptions of what these songs should sound like. Um, And we've taken that criticism seriously, and we are actually expanding our survey to 28 languages. So uh, we're translating it, for example, into Indonesian and Urdu and uh, Amharic. Um, But then we're also taking it to the field. So uh, we're taking it to, for example, Bolivia or Indonesia, and we're we have plans to take mm. it to Vanuatu, and we want to play it for people who do not necessarily have access to this kind of globalized contemporary music culture, um, uh, who right. will give us a better insight into whether these conceptions are shared by people who have little access well, to, uh, to In, in the a minute internet. left, I have. I want. Does, every, does anybody have songs about the blues? Do we have common songs about everybody singing the blues? Well, so we don't have any in the natural history of song discography yet, uh, but one of the th- other things that we're doing sort of now that this paper's out is we're, we're working on expanding the discography to cover oh. more contexts of singing, and, and a pretty commonly found uh, song type worldwide are laments, um, which is you know, a fancier way to say the blues. <laughs> yes. Right? Um, so, so, yeah, it would be really cool to study those you know, in, as we expand the data set. 
thinking of that song where they, first they rehearsed it and then and there's the, okay we'll, we'll, we'll have you back when we talk more about the blues I want to thank both of you for taking time to talk <laughs> with us Samuel Mayer research associate in the Department of Psychology at uh, Music Lab at Harvard and then Singh also at, uh, at Harvard University thank you both for taking time yeah thanks a lot thanks, for having you're us. welcome That's it for this episode. Universe of Art is hosted and produced by me, Dee Peterschmidt, and I also wrote the music. The segment you just heard was originally produced by Alexa Lim. Our show art is illustrated by Abel Hayford, and support for Science Friday's science and arts coverage comes from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. We'll be back in two weeks. See ya!